0: Isles Bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this wonderful honor to gather together as family, to break bread in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for the inerrant word of God, your word, the very expression of you and the nature of you, Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for giving us time to ponder it, to reflect on it, and to be sanctified by it. Thank you also, Father, for giving us an opportunity to spread the good news about your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know time is short. We know that each of our lives is just but a vapor. What a privilege it is to bring glory to you in time, Father. May we never become familiar with such things. We pray for those in the congregation that are ill, Father, that desire to be here but cannot be. and We pray also for those in the world that are still lost, that you might humble them in due time. And maybe, just maybe, we might be in the path of evangelizing them. We thank you for that privilege. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a morning like this even, a week like this, a life like this, a reality. Thank you. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is good? That is a uh, question that I think all of us need to reflect on, uh, not just today, but regularly. What is in our life? What are we celebrating? What are we doing? What's good? And then who gets to define it? Because the world has myriad definitions for what's good or goodness, and it lies all the time. It lies to you all day, every day. Watch a television program. I think someone said it best recently. You know, the programs, those aren't the main things. The main things are the commercials. That's why TV exists, is for the commercials. And if you watch a commercial, they're telling you, oh, this is good. Oh, this is good. This is why you should be paying 50 times more money for this product than this one, even though they're basically the same thing. Because it's good to have a little icon on your hat or your shirt or I don't know, your shampoo even, or your soap, or your socks that nobody can see anyways. But you know it's there, don't you? Those aren't good things. Those are lies. That's the whole point. But we'll get to that. You know what this is called right here? Can you see it? Thank you. I mean, it was kind of rhetorical, but... Now that you mention it, it's a, <laughs> it's a sunset at Beaver, Beaver Tail Point in Rhode Island. <laughs> don't answer, DJ. These are daisies from Green Animals Topiary Garden in Rhode Island. And I don't know if you can see it. You can see the moon, right? Yeah. That's a picture of the cross down at the pulpit at Cathedral of the Pines in New Hampshire. And all these things, um, we might say that God is revealing himself to his creatures. I mean, have you ever looked that closely to a daisy? Oh, no, daisies, they're just, you know, mundane. I want roses or lilies. No, how about a daisy? How about the simple flowers? How about the ones that everybody tramples? How about a dandelion? Half of you have cut them up get them out of your yard because they screw up your grass. But these are all things that God uses to reveal himself to his creatures with wonder, excitement, majesty, and glory. The Bible is full of such things that testify even of his sovereignty in this universe. I mean, who else could create such things with such beauty? and then reveal them to creatures that he also created that have the faculties to appreciate such things. So the Bible's full of these things. And you know what? Spoiler alert. God is good. Not the God of this world. Not your neighbors. Not you. The only reason anything good in you is because of God. God is good. And God knows good. Okay, go home. I'm kidding. kidding. God is good and God knows good. Now, here's the interesting thing that the Spirit had me pondering. He's going to have me share it with you. Until the fall in the garden, man only knew good. Think about that. Before the fall, man only knew good. So let's go back as we often do to the starting point for everything. Hey, 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 you don't know. I could say Romans. <laughs> let's go back as we often do to the starting point for everything that ever makes sense to us in time. It's true. Let's go to that time and place where things were simple and pure even goodness, where the idea of good was pure and absolutely simple. And let's see what God has to say about good things. Okay, Genesis (laughs) 1-1. Guys are so cocky. (laughs) Genesis 1-1. I never, ever, ever tire of reading the first three chapters of Genesis, ever. It has to be one of the most grounding uh, passages of Scripture in the whole Bible, because it just takes you back to when things were simple and pure. And, of course, the corruption. But Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth so this is uh, sort of approaching the first mention of general revelation. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness... God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from, from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and in the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens, to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him male and female, he created them, and they were good, because he was because he is good, remember? God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Again, the point on the board, God is good, God knows good. He looked upon his own creation and said, this is good. I'll inject this quote from Thursday here now, from a gentleman by the name of Pastor Mark. Endeavor. I believe he does a, a he passes a church down in DC area God defines what is good God saw his own creation and said it's good God defines what is good goodness or righteousness is not an external standard that God effortlessly and perfectly conforms to that would mean that there was some definition outside of his own essence that defined what was good and he had to ratchet or prove himself in it uh-uh, that's not the way you think about God. Rather, goodness is a way of describing God in all His actions and commands. It's a way of describing God. God's not conforming to anybody's definition. As much as the world wants to tell you, "Well, why is God, God, it doesn't sound like a good God to me to let so-and-so suffer?" What are they trying to do? They're trying to force God into their definition of good. That's wrong. That's man trying to put God in a box. That's wrong. We do it. Whether you believe it or not, it would probably take me less than a minute to figure out some way in your life, if I know you well enough, to point out that's how you put God in a box. Likewise, being made in the image of God, we were created knowing good. God knows good. God defines good. We were created, made in the image of God, and we knew good. We were created this way. And in the beginning, before the fall, that's all humanity knew. There's only two of them, but that's all humanity knew. Before the fall. was what God defined as good. That's how simple and pure it was. In the purest sense all the first two humans were completely intimated with was with what God described as very good. In other words, they were created into this scene, this atmosphere, this environment that was, as God described, very good. And that's all they knew. How beautiful is that? How pure is that? That's all they knew, what was good, enveloped in it in a relationship that was purely good, unfettered. So there we have our purest standard for what we should be calling good. That's our pure standard. For what we should be calling good, that scene. Now, before we go any further, just reflect with me, because this is, like I said before class started, This is where the rubber hits the road. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Consider right now what the world defines as good. What does the world define as good? And we'll compare, let's say, before the fall, pre-fall versus today. What did Adam and Eve think was good before the fall? And what does the world say is good now? For example, is it really good to celebrate heroes and idols? Is that really good? Some of you are going to watch more than one football game today, and you're going to idolize some guy in a football jersey who could care less, probably, many times, not always, about your Lord. What are you doing? Even if you did care about the Lord, what are you doing Heroicizing them, or uh, idolizing them? Is it really good to celebrate or idolize? How about, is it really good to celebrate perverted love? For example, and I'm not picking on this, but there's a multitude of perversions of love. For example, same-sex marriage. Are we supposed to celebrate that? Are we, are, are serious? are we supposed to be celebrating this? Oh, good for you. It's ungodly, but good for you. I'm happy for you. I'm not happy for you, because it's ungodly. That's why I'm not happy for you. You're confused right now. You're perverted. What are we doing celebrating that in others even? If not ourselves, is it really good to quote protect the mother by promoting abortion? When I say protect, that's what the world gives you as good. Oh, it's good to protect the mother that way. It's, it's to protect the mother. Is that really a good thing to quote protect the mother by promoting abortion murder? Is that really a good thing? Is this what we're celebrating? The ability to what? I don't know. Or how about to live licentiously under the auspices of grace? How about that one? God's grace. Everybody loves grace. Licentiousness means basically I have a license to sin. Are we supposed to be celebrating? Is it really good to live licentiously under the auspices of grace? Is this what we're saying even from so-called christian pulpits is it really good grace is good but i think that most people have grace defined wrong it's perverted it's in some kind of a little box that they tote around when they need it like a get out of jail free card do you know what i'm saying and it's all premeditated it's like the morning after pill Do you go what i'm getting at go have a one night stand and then just take the pill after i'm all good Yeah, what did God say about that whole scene? Seriously, what did God say about that whole scene? But I have a pill, so it doesn't matter. It's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay to live licentiously, knowing that God's grace is going to pick you up, that God's mercy is right around the corner. We call that abusing grace. But the world says it's all good. Because now you don't have to worry about a a little tyke bothering your... You know, your career as an up and coming woman. You understand? Again, these are the things that, even from the highest offices in our own country, are deemed good. We almost elected a woman that was for so called pro choice and gay marriage and celebrating everything on the board, pretty much. I'm not saying who we elected is much better. just different badness in many ways. Anyways, maybe the real question we need to be asking ourselves beyond the basic question, what are we celebrating, is something like this. How about, would Adam and Eve have celebrated such things before the fall? Look at the board. Would Adam and Eve have celebrated such things before the fall in simple, pure goodness? The fact is that before the fall, such abominations wouldn't even have registered with them because they hadn't known the distinction between good and evil yet. But you get the point. Hold that thought. Go to Genesis 2.9. Genesis 2.9. I think a lot of people are afraid to go back to the simplicity and purity of devotion to the Lord. And where can we go? We can go before the fall where it was simple and pure devotion to the Lord God. I think a lot of people are afraid to go there because it's such a blinding light on their own life that they don't want to read the Bible that way. They only want to read the portions that talk about the grace of God bailing them out of yet another situation. Or some easy-peasy way to get into heaven, some free ticket based on some prayer with absolutely no regard whatsoever for Jesus Christ's own words. Genesis 2.9 out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now concentrate, as I've taught you in the past, godly knowledge, quote-unquote, is beyond just knowing your multiplication tables in math. This implies a certain intimacy, and it's a divine one at that. This kind of knowing, knowing God, knowing such things, spiritual truths, transcendent truths. There's an intimacy there. It's not just, you know, I know two plus two. It's not just those things. It requires your eyes, quote, to be opened by the Spirit of God himself. That's what it requires. To know God this way to know such things it requires your eyes to be opened this idea of knowledge carries with it the same idea that we studied in the past with jesus's own words up here on the board matthew 7 22 to 23 many will say to me on that day lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then i will declare to them i never knew you Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. What kind of knowledge is he talking about? Obviously, he knows them. He's standing right in front of him. Probably met some of them in his incarnation on earth. So, Jesus knew those he was talking to. He was referring to divine knowing, a transcendent intimacy, a divine relationship. We see this same transcendence in Genesis 2.9 with the knowledge of good and evil even a certain knowledge of something. Only in this case, there was no knowledge in any sense of the word prior to the fall. Again, look at Genesis 2.9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll give you something from a gentleman by the name of Matthew Poole on Genesis 2.9. To man who by the use of it would know to his cost how great and good things he did enjoy and might have kept by his obedience and how evil and bitter the fruits of, di- of his disobedience were to himself and all his posterity. So it seems to be an ironical denomination, QD, I mean that's Latin for quasi dicta, as if to say, you thirsted after more knowledge, which also the devil promised you. And you have got what you desired, more knowledge, even dear-bought experience. In other words, you got what you asked for. God said you would die. You fail this test right here, dying thou shalt die. You will die spiritually, on the spot, becoming a sinner, and you will also die physically as a result, as a byproduct even. And that's exactly what they did. Satan lied to them. And they bought the lie. And there goes simplicity and purity. And you can kind of recollect on this in your own life. If you stop buying lies, there goes the simplicity and purity in your own life, even in terms of your own sanctification as a believer. Again, after God declares His creation very good, He puts before Adam and the woman a simple test. In verse 9 it says, The tree of life falls in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... After this, Satan, so God puts this test in front of this pure situation, in the midst of this pure situation, Satan slithers along, and instead of the woman thinking with a good heart, she allows Satan to do a little thinking for her. Does that sound familiar to you? What happens when the world does a little thinking for you? Isn't that when you get in trouble? When you let somebody else start doing your thinking? When you let somebody else start convincing you that this is okay and that's good and this is good and that's good? And instead of consulting the word of God, you go, okay. Seems to make sense at face value. And since I'm a lazy slob, I'm just going to believe you. And let's start down this wretched road together. You see, that's what happens when you let Satan or anybody satanic in your life do a little thinking for you. That's what happened in the garden. Go to Genesis 3 5. Genesis 3 5. Some of you need to stop talking to other people, frankly. Some of you need to stop. That's why why do you think from the pulpit so it's not about Pastor Ed getting crazy about who you're hanging around with? I could care less fundamentally speaking. It's about who you're listening to. Why do you think the Spirit's saying all these things? Be careful who you hang around with. Why? Because they lie to you. I mean, let's put it, just to put it in context before we read this verse, who did, who did Jesus Christ say, Get behind me, Satan, to? Peter, the apostle, the leader of the apostles. So if Peter can be satanic in a moment, what about your loved ones or the ones you're listening to? That has now their their counsel has supplanted this counsel. You no longer go to this, you pick up the phone because you're lazy. And maybe they're the ones telling you what you want to hear, huh? They're not abiding in the blog I just wrote. They're not telling you the truth about the sin in your life. They're, they're, they're enticing you along just like Satan would. They're slithering along, tempting you. Time and time again. And all in the name of goodness. But it's good because you know what? You know what? It feels good. Who cares how it feels? Seriously, it feels good. Isn't that the problem with our country nowadays? Everything's driven on how things feel. It's a big emotional basket case. Why? Probably because we're dominated by feminism. It's a big emotional basket case now. It's how you feel. How can you offend them? How can you do this thing? You're making that that poor person feel bad. Yeah, but what about the other hundred people that are in the same room with them? Everybody forget about them? Verse 5, Genesis 3. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. This is the lie. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the lie. Not that your eyes, I mean, their eyes were opened. Knowing, same Hebrew word as before, good and evil, up here on the board. Again, knowing good and evil, this implies an intimacy that was unknown, inexperienced by humanity before the fall. The serpentine lie was that it was good, quote unquote, to know good and evil. That was the lie. You want to know good and evil. God's lying to you. He's holding back on you, you see he's holding back to live in it to abide in it to forfeit the so-called so-called ignorance of the purity of faith and worship do you ever get that sense that people think you're ignorant because your faith is pure do you say i don't care what you say this is my bible and this is what i live by this is what i want to live by this is what i'm trying to live by this is what i adore and they go i guess if you need that You must be ignorant because science and existentialism and all these other theories and even religions say differently. But there's an idea in the Bible, knowing good and evil, being intimate with it. Obviously, good and evil already existed because Satan had already fallen, right? God already knew it. Through temptation, sin was born and mankind moved from the sphere of life to the sphere of death. For in that latter sphere, there is no longer a pure faith and worship of the singular God that is good. But here's what I want you all to dwell on right now. The great deception throughout human history is that goodness is perversely defined. That's what the Spirit's getting at here. What say you of good? What's the message title? What is good and who gets to define it? Throughout human history... Goodness itself is perversely defined. For example, as Paul wrote most fundamentally on the topic up here on the board, 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, we just read that, by his craftiness, in other words, he did thinking, she allowed him to do a little thinking for her, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Some of you just need to stop thinking. Seriously. I've intimated this in the past for me being an analytical engineering type guy. It's hard for me sometimes. That's my tendency is to overthink, to overanalyze. And I end up even in this, I overthink and overanalyze sometimes. The next thing I know, I mean, the only thing I overthink and analyze is like extra biblical, like scientific or human reasoning. Or I start asking questions based on poor suppositions, suppositions that there's no faith in God. If God says it's so in this book, then guess what? It's so. That's it. You'd be doing really well just to say that to yourself. If it's in here, then I'm going to believe it, and that's the end of it. And you can argue, you know, all you unbelievers can argue and you know, come at me and all this and call me ignorant if you want. I don't care. For example, it is not good to. Seek a definition for quote good anywhere than from the Word of God. Don't go looking for a definition of good anywhere other than Scripture. It's not good to accept the world's definition for good in any way, shape, or form because the world's filled with liars. The God of this world propagates lies. That's what he does. He's the father of lies. So he's going to tell you, you know, this thing's good, and it looks good, doesn't it? Because it's a darn good counterfeit, but it's actually no good for you. It's not good to accept criticism for your beliefs as viable alternatives. Oh, well, you believe that, but this is what I believe and why. And you go, hmm, no. No. And it's not good to accept evil for good or good for evil. Isaiah 5.20, up here on the board. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those! We must be so very diligent not to get caught in any of these traps. It's so easy to just buy the lie. We were having a conversation before class, and I'm not going to mention any names, but um, someone purchased something at like a secondhand store, and they were really excited about it, right? They purchased something from a store, and they were really excited about it. Why? Because literally it was about um I don't know, it was like $50 cheaper than it would be if it was brand new. They bought this thing at a secondhand store for like $3. But you know what? It probably cost less than a dollar to make. And the only reason they were excited is because it was a certain name brand something. And I said, would, if that wasn't a name brand something, would you have even mentioned it to me this morning? No. Like, in other words, if you got that same thing from Kmart and it didn't have the little logo on it, would you be excited about the $3 buy that you supposedly saved 50-something dollars on. Would you be excited? Actually, no. So what are you doing then? You think it's actually good to be an idolater. You think it's actually good to pay an exorbitant amount of money for something that some Chinaman made for a dollar. Why? Because of commercialism and idolatry. And the rest of the schmucks out there are saying, whoa, you got that little thing with the, the little moniker on it, or the little logo, a little tag that costs 38 cents not even 3.8 cents to to manufacture but it's hanging off there and he's got that little you know that little logo that everybody recognized whoa you got that there? that's totally worth hundreds of dollars it's the same and i'm not picking on smokers but it's the same argument that people make it's almost like you're saying i'm going to spend ten dollars a pack to kill myself i'm going to spend hundreds of dollars or fifty dollars on something that would cost three to show myself an idiot. To show the world that I'm an idolater. Can you believe that? And you tell me that you don't understand what good. You understand the definition of good. Think about what Adam and Eve would think about such things. Would they be boasting about such things? Not a chance. It would be foreign to them, completely. Like, what? Wouldn't even register if you understand what I'm getting at. It's the funniest thing. People spend harder and money to prove to the world that they're idiots. I mean, who the hell spends ten or twelve dollars so they can rot their lungs out? Do you know, and I'm not picking on smokers, so you smokers stop getting all up in arms. Or well, who spends you know hundreds of dollars on this or that to prove themselves? An idolater. Who does that? That's how ridiculous human beings are. All based on what? A false pretense, a false definition of what is good. It's actually not good to say to the world, I'm a stinking idolater. That's not good. It's not really good to say to the world, I'm an idiot. Oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian idiot. It's not good to say that. To the world, it's not good to announce those things. It's not good to live that life because it it does not shine light on God. Oh, a licentious person will say, "I can smoke like this because God's grace keeps me alive. I'm going to die from something." And they say that's a good thing. That's not a good thing. You're killing yourself. I'm not being offensive to some of you, but I don't care. It's not good to kill your holy temple. Is that fair? I'm not going to teach you go to hell or, you know, oh, wow, that's a venal sin or some ridiculous stupid crap. I'm not going to teach that. I'm saying it's not good to kill yourself and pay for it. Is that fair to say? It's equally not as good to call something good and to celebrate something good. <gasps> oh, my God. That's right. On sale. I got it on sale. 300 It used to be 2000 I'm not worthy. You're my new idol. What do you think of my new wheels? That's what Billy has. He bounces when he comes in the parking lot, nobody sees it. Brenda's like, go, baby. I'm kidding. Do you understand? Look at my ground effects. Who's that for? Is that for God? God's into ground effects now? I'm serious. What's God into? I'm serious. If God is good, and God defines what is good, you tell me what, how you're bringing glory to God in the things you're doing. And then you tell me that you don't have a perverted definition of what is good. Is it not obvious? We have to be so very diligent. And this is what the Spirit's saying. He goes, can we stop all the stupidness now? Can we stop pretending and patting each other on the back? And can we stop celebrating ridiculousness in our lives and complimenting each other for actually purchasing foolishness? Did not God, did not God use the, the, the shameful things of the, word, the world? the the low things of the world, to shame the wise? Who's the wise and who's the shameful? If you're the idolater. Oh, but the world thinks so highly of you, don't they? The world lifts you up, doesn't it? Is that good? To be lifted up for something ungodly? Do you see what the Spirit's getting at? And we all have those things in our lives, and that's what he's saying. Because you have to be very diligent, you have to go back to the, 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 the root of things. How are, you, how are your discernments manifest? How are you deciding what to do, even this day? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to talk to? What are you going to buy? How are you going to spend your time? How are you making those decisions? So if you read between the lines with the Spirit's presentation of wisdom and truth to you this morning, you'll see it very clearly up here on the board, the, quote, good litmus test. It is very sobering to analyze our own definitions for good. And don't think you're alone. I do it all the time. I have to step back and go, is that even good? Is what you're doing good right now? Nope. It's very sobering. To step back and go, are my definitions of good even good? Or is that something that I got from the world? Or do you, are you one of those idiots that plays the game? Well, in this part of my life, I do a bunch of good stuff. And since it's like a scale, I get to do this other bad stuff. And God's cool with it. What, what planet are you living on? I never knew that anybody arrived at a balance like that. I thought sanctification meant all the way until perfection. So how are you sitting there justifying one thing in your life by having another thing in your life, or vice versa? That's not good either. That's a perverse scale. And who owns the scales and the weights? God does, so says Holy Scripture. That's good. You know why? Because it's in here. Imagine that. I just quoted Scripture. Pastor Ed quoted Scripture. Imagine that. Oh, man. The good litmus test. It is very sobering to analyze our own definitions for good. We might quickly realize that what we think and even act upon as good really isn't. A good litmus test is to observe what we esteem or even celebrate in ourselves and others. Are you one of the person Oh, it's so awesome. You're such an idiot. No, really, supplant that the next time. Before you finish the sentence, oh my God, you're such an idiot. Sometimes you're looking in the mirror, sometimes you're looking at a friend. He's oh, such an idiot. Do you realize you're an idolater? Do you, do you realize how idolatrous that is? Just saying. be quiet in here. I know, right? Because he doesn't let up. And that's what's beautiful about, at least this pulpit, he won't let up. Why would, Why should he let up? He's the perfect God of the universe. Why would he let up? Why would he accommodate you like your weak, pathetic spouse or friends or whoever it is you hang around with? Why would he want to accommodate you? I've already taught you that. God doesn't accommodate man. He's not in the business of saying, oh, I know I'm holy, almighty, and sovereign, And have every right to do anything I want to do in absolute format. I'm that guy, but I'm going to make a special case for you. Because you did so good this weekend, little Johnny, that now I'm going to give you a free pass this afternoon. Don't work that way. God's not into celebrating after the fact. Like the Bible says, are we going to celebrate doing what we're supposed to do? You know, there's a whole parable on that. You expect to be rewarded for doing what you're supposed to do? This is what we're doing now? Because that's what the world teaches us is good. Yay, everybody gets a trophy. All I did was show up. I know. You get a trophy. What? For doing what? What I was supposed to do? Yay. That don't work. We don't get trophies from the Bible for doing what we're supposed to do. All glory and honor goes to who? God. We don't get trophies for doing what we're supposed to do. That's the problem. It's not good. But yet, you see how ingrained it is? It's literally ingrained in our society. Things that are supposedly good, that are completely undermining and corrupting generation upon generation. yeah all right with all that said with all that in tow let's get back to the framework we've been using to establish god's revelation of himself and his nature which is of course truly good and through this effort the intention is that we become more and more grounded that's what this is all about maybe even more oriented to the mindset of humanity before the fall It's okay. Go back and say, geez, I wonder what Adam and Eve would do at this point. You know, what would, in their purity, if I had their mind, it's impossible, but you know what I'm saying. If I orient to their mindset, what would they say or do in this moment in time? There are two types of revelation. As we began on Thursday, we're going to continue to use a popular passage of holy scripture to help us walk through this namely psalm 19 1 to 14 up here on the board here's our little framework that we're using and again he's going to end up weaving uh, moments like we just went through this morning uh, into this framework there's two kinds of revelation general and special general is god's witness of himself through creation we just saw what he said was good in genesis 1 And then there's special revelation. God reveals himself directly. Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, acts, etc. And we see that in the second part of our passage. So we've already done most of the good work on general revelation. So let's summarize. I'll go quickly. Go to Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. So you got a lot to think about already. I could have stopped right there. I can't believe it's been this long already. But I could have stopped right there. But nonetheless, he wants to plug on. you got a lot to think about, though, about what you think and what you define as good. And some of you are in households. You have to understand that, too. Some of you are single, live alone. Some of you are in households, which means that the two of you actually have to contemplate this thing. And the two of you, like my blog said and wrote, The two of you have to actually check each other once in a while and say, hey, honey, uh, that's not really good. That kind of thinking, that kind of unforgiving heart, that kind of wretchedness, that kind of idolatry, it's not good. Maybe we should think about, as a team here, maybe we should think about not doing those things. Do you know what I'm saying? Some of you in relationships that are like that, especially in the household. Some of you have friends that you hang around with that consistently want you to celebrate ungodliness in the name of goodness. Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Again, this is uh, general revelation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. We also noted uh, on Thursday, go to Acts 14:17. Acts fourteen seventeen. I think it's fair to say already that God wants you to know what the definition for good is. But he wants it to be consistent with his own. And so he's revealed himself, even generally. Acts 14, verse 17. What does it say? It says, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Yeah, he is good and he hasn't left you without witness of himself up here on the board. Even divine providence. Some of you are going to go home and probably eat a a decent meal this afternoon. Oh, who's allowing that in your life? Who's, who, who put the food on your table? You or God? Whose food is it to give in the first place? Yours or God's? Some of you are like, it's mine. I cooked it. God didn't cook it. it. Was God here? I was stirring the batter. I put the eggs in for my souffle, if there's eggs in souffle. Is there anybody? Somebody. like, does anybody cook anymore? <laughs> I put the thing in the microwave, better. I peeled the thing back, put the fork hole in the top. Is that better? Some of you are like, yeah, that's me. God wasn't there. It was me and General Electric spinning. Even, okay, You want to look at it? that stupid? That's divine providence too. Who's cycling the electrons through there? Who's keeping up the physics so the electrons can bounce off your food and vibrate the molecules and heat them up? Who's doing all that and upholding it by the word of his power? The Lord is. Divine providence. This is a part of general revelation as described in the Bible. The fact that nature provides for us is indicative of God's intrinsic goodness. He did not leave himself without witness. Go to Acts 17, 24. Acts 17.24. Again, I'm going quickly. These are points of review. God's general revelation in view. If we're going to talk about what's good, we should know about the one that is good. Acts 17.24, the God who made the world and all things in it. And what did he say? And this is very good. So he's revealing something intrinsically good to us, you see. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heavens and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or fancy idolatrous... Uh, uh, articles of clothing, or, uh, you know, fill in the blanks. I don't know. Whatever it is that you're idolizing these days, whatever you're defining as good, whatever you're celebrating as good nowadays. An image formed by the art and thought of man. Up here on the board, the divine nature is not like gold or silver or stone. Acts 17 29. Even though man might tend to to label such things as, quote, good, the goodness of God transcends such things. We also consider the following in support of the concept of general revelation up here on the board. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has been made. Do you understand? His eternal power and divine nature, his invisible attributes, these are the things that are clearly seen. How? Through general revelation understood through what He has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, you can't say there's no God, and you can't say that He didn't reveal His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature. Why? Because His creation speaks these things to every human being. Otherwise, He'd be unjust. If He doesn't evangelize everybody, He has no right sentencing any person to the lake of fire. So He reveals Himself. He's created us able to understand such things. Romans 10, 18 on the board. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have their voice, referencing the heavens from Psalm nineteen four, has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Again, our anchor passage for general revelation in our framework is Psalm 19, 1 to 6. As per our message title, what is good and who gets to define it? Up here on the board. The simple fact is that every person who's ever lived has known that God exists at some point in their lives. Every single person who has ever lived understood this and understands this. Ever. Otherwise, God would be unjust. So even a person who says they're an atheist or an agnostic, they're lying. They're without excuse. That's the truth. So we have to remember that it is God's intention and it's very simple right up here on the board. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men. That means all men and women to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his intention. So he makes himself known to everyone. That's how it works. God's intention is to reveal himself as the sovereign. Listen, I'm going to give you some big picture perspective God's intention is to reveal himself as the sovereign over his own kingdom. The Bible calls this the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as per the gospel books. But again, it's God's intention to reveal himself as the sovereign over his own kingdom. This is his kingdom. Do you understand? He designed us to be in his kingdom. And he wants everybody to be in his kingdom. Or else he's going to throw them out. I think one of the great errors that we can point to in contemporary Christianity is that we have forgotten the divine purpose of revelation, even, whether general or special. In brief, that God establishes himself as sovereign over his kingdom and gives mankind a conscience to understand that he isn't worthy to be a part of it. And then finally, he makes a way to reconcile mankind to himself through His Son, our Lord and Savior. That's the grand design for the ages, my friends. That's it. I'm sovereign. You know it. You need a Savior. I'm sovereign. You know it. And you need a Savior. That's how He works. Is that difficult? Not at all. Not at all. Those are the facts. You know how I know they're facts? Because I believe in the inerrancy. Of the Word of God. So that's the grand design for the ages, and that is precisely what God intends to reveal to His creatures. He wants you to know these things. He wants you to know that He's sovereign over His own kingdom. He wants you to know that. He's given you a conscience to understand right and wrong. And then He became a man and hung on a cross to die for the sins. Sins that you've committed, and He wants you to know all this. That's the point. What kind of God would it be to keep that in secret like some, you know, like some Gnostics would say in the old days? Well, you've got to dig deep to get really close and understand all these highfalutin things. That doesn't sound like the Word of God to me at all. At all. That would seem exclusive. How would that meet His goals? He wants everyone to be saved. It's actually very simple and what's beautiful about it is that he's revealed himself in such a way that the way to salvation the way to partake the way to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of god is very simple as well it's through his son he made it all easy that's what grace is So we must keep all of the big picture perspective in view even when we're huddled together in the trenches learning specific aspects of specific biblical doctrines such as general revelation. We're in the weeds a little bit. I get it. But we've got to keep the big picture in view. What's this all about anyways? Why would he want to teach us general revelation? Well, first of all, since you're a believer, you can understand it. See, an unbeliever doesn't understand these things. I just read that. I think it was Calvin. I sent it to Todd earlier. Um, a person who argues over the viability, the validity of the Bible with an unbeliever is foolish. It's actually foolish. It's not time well spent at all. Why? Because your eyes are opened by God the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. Not you arguing with people. Do you, does that make sense? If you're interested in that quote, uh, shoot me a text or an email, I'll send it to you. Actually, I put it on the social network if you're on there. Consider the following. Man's conscience with creation, or along with, someone might argue that beholding God's creation is one thing, but understanding it in the context of salvation is another thing altogether, but they'd be wrong. In other words, that's like saying God's not revealing himself for a reason. God reveals himself so that people are without excuse for a reason. Like I said, I'm the sovereign. You know what's right and wrong. You know you never measure up to me, therefore I'll give you my son as your Lord and Savior. I want you to know these things. So the first step really is, well, who's God? God's the creator, and he's sovereign, and he wants you to know that. And he gave you the ability, every one of you, to know it. And then when you realize that you can't measure up, he says, don't worry about it, I'll save you too. Sounds awesome to me. So to divorce these two things is wrong. They presuppose that God hasn't instilled a conscience in man, as if, you know, man could go, wow, there's a God, but I don't think that I'm little or wrong or a sinner or anything like that. God wouldn't do that. In other words, in light of God's glory... It's impossible for man's conscience not to be convicted. Go to Romans 2.14, quickly. i got to pick a spot here. I'm not going to make the end, I don't think. How's everybody doing? Everybody hanging in there? All right. You learned how to pace yourself. I see a much smaller row of coffees up front here, just saying. <laughs> Romans 2.14 for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts; their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively, or alternately, accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The point is up here on the board. God uses his witness through creation along with the conscience he has designed and installed in every man to convict them of their humble estate before the sovereign God of the universe. He says, I want you to know who I am, and I'm going to show you, because this is good. I have deemed it good. We just read that in Genesis 1. It's all very good. And I'm good. And I'm going to reveal myself to you through um, creation. And then I'm going to also give you a conscience to be humbled by it in other words it's wrong to think you're above the creator of all that because he's sovereign and that mandates this relationship master slave sovereign subject and i want you to understand that i am the sovereign and i'm going to give you a conscience so that you're without excuse if you say no i disagree make sense That drives you right towards the gospel, and then he presents you with the gospel. And if you say no to that, you've you've blasphemed the spirit because the spirit will convict you straight up. You need a savior. You know you need a savior. No, I don't. You're a liar. That's why it's blasphemy of the spirit. How do I know that? The inerrant word of God. That's how I know. Consider the fact that our Creator has put the idea and even the word of forever in our hearts. Consider the fact that our Creator has put the idea and even the word of forever in our hearts. Solomon states that God has placed an understanding of eternity in the heart of man, even the unregenerate. So just to bring these things together Together, up here on the board, we did this good work on Thursday, up here on the board. On general revelation, God witnesses to himself through creation, Romans 1.20. God creates man with a conscience, ability to know right and wrong, Romans 2.14-16. God sets eternity in man's heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11. So it is an inescapable truth when you synthesize these three realities. Again... Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. We might summarize Thursday's capstone principle this way. God saves. He purposely reveals his own glory through creation to creatures, man, that have the God-given faculties to comprehend it. To the humble man, this is the... Repentance part of the gospel, at least what leads them to it, the faith part is in Christ, our Redeemer. Even Job knew that, and he lived long before the incarnation of Christ. Job 19 25 on the board, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on earth. And then, one final warning I'll give you from Thursday, and I wanted to get to this before closing, this is why I rushed. General revelation is not the gospel. Nowhere in the Bible does it say just because we see nature that we're saved by understanding that the sovereign God exists. There has to be a solution to the problem. The idea is that drives you to the problem statement, the correct one, that you need a Savior. So people are not saved by realizing there's a problem based on the relationship between sovereign and subject. We're not saved by that. That helps us realize the problem statement in full force. That drives us to the need for the gospel. But do not make that mistake of thinking people can be saved by looking at a mountain. Because that doesn't save people. Christ saves. God saves through His Son. So says Scripture. Up here on the board. The Bible clearly speaks what it is, and then it's, excuse me, the Bible clearly speaks to the fact that a person must believe in Christ to be saved. I think I'll end there. We've done an awful lot of talking, a lot of discussion about um, the revelation of God and why he does it. And I hope you keep that big picture, that God is the sovereign over his kingdom, and he's, The design is that he's given us each a conscience, even an unbeliever, so that they were without excuse if they reject the truth about him as sovereign over his own kingdom. And then he's provided our Savior. That's, in a sense, the gospel, isn't it, reloaded again. Because repentance happens in the first half of that equation and saving faith happens in the second part. That's the whole good news, though, that you understand? That's the whole good news, that God saves. But do not be confused before we go. The Bible clearly speaks to the fact that a person must believe in Christ to be saved. Amen? Yes. Bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for giving us clarity on the truth that, the holy, that your Holy Scripture sets forth, that your Spirit, inspired even so that we might be equipped to take these things that we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs these things so desperately. We just ask for your grace and your mercy and your patience in doing so, and we ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.